Hebrews chapter 2, beginning now at verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were their all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that now it would speak across the centuries by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit to our open hearts and minds now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is only our fourth study through this great letter to the Hebrews. And with this fourth study, we're finishing up chapter two. And as I mentioned to you before, next week, we're going to begin in chapter three. But there's an important point here at the end of chapter two that I think we have to let sink into our hearts. Although, as I say that, I'm very aware that our main idea, our main theme this morning It would sound very strange in the ears of an atheist to someone who's an agnostic or feels no connection with the God who created all things. What I'm going to talk about now this morning, what our text explains to us, I think would sound very distant or maybe even a little bit crazy to them. Because what this text speaks about so powerfully is the close connection that exists between Jesus and his people. Now, I I understand that from somebody who perhaps is an atheist or agnostic, they might think that that just sounds crazy. Why don't you talk about the closeness between you and Abraham Lincoln or you and Socrates or something like that? But here's the point. What we have to say about Jesus is that Jesus was not just one of the other great men who walked this earth. He wasn't just another great philosopher. He wasn't just another great teacher. But you see, as the writer of the Hebrews has so powerfully shown us already in the first few chapters of Hebrews, is that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived under the same sun that shines upon us, who saw the same stars and walked by the light of the same moon at night, this same man, Jesus of Nazareth, he was God. And I know that in the ears of some people, that might sound preposterous. But let me tell you something. He demonstrated it by the way he lived. He demonstrated by the miraculous things he did. And he demonstrated it most pointedly by the fact that he rose from the dead. And so Jesus Christ is God. But yet the writer of the Hebrews also wanted to show us that he's also man. 
that he's this remarkably unique person in all of history, in all the universe, fully God and fully man. And now he demonstrates this, that this Jesus has and wants to have a close connection with his people. Now, he couldn't have that close connection with his people unless he could sympathize with his people in some way. And look at it right here in verse 10. That's why he says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Did you see that in verse 10? It was fitting. It was fitting for what? It was fitting to make Jesus perfect through suffering. For what end? To bring many sons to glory. Now, please, nobody should think for a moment by saying sons that he's excluding the daughters. He means the daughters as well. But to bring his people, to bring his family, to bring those who are in association with him. It was fitting for the sovereign God. By the way, did you love the way in verse 10 that he mentioned the sovereignty of God? That's a majestic phrase. By whom are all things. Excuse me. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. That sovereign God. It was fitting to take that sovereign God and to have him undergo suffering for the sake of the sons that he would bring to glory. Now, I speak purely hypothetically, but purely in a hypothetical way, we could conceive that perhaps God could have engineered a way to rescue fallen humanity without having to undergo suffering personally or without having to undergo such terrible suffering. But ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about the cross in what it meant physically, in what it meant emotionally, in what it meant psychologically, but most of all, in what it meant spiritually for Jesus to lay his body down as a sacrifice on the cross. And we understand that we're talking about the epitome of human suffering. In other words, God just didn't taste a little bit of suffering. He plunged himself down into the suffering for the sake of humanity. And he said that it was fitting for him to do so. Now this, this, should completely transform the way that you and I think of suffering. Look, I don't, dis, um, I don't uh, um, uh, criticize you or, or think weird of you for despising suffering. I don't like it. And if somebody here really likes suffering, well, first of all, it makes me wonder if you've ever really suffered. Secondly, it just makes me wonder if you don't have kind of a screw loose in your head. Suffering is suffering. But here's the point. We can't despise it when God uses a tool of suffering in our life to accomplish a greater purpose. He has a wise and a good plan for us. And nobody in this room should say, well, Lord, it was okay for you to use suffering in the life of your son, but I'm better than that. Can anybody here say such a thing? No. And so, no, we understand that even in the suffering that we undergo in this time, God has a good and a wise purpose. And Jesus is there with us, sympathizing with us in the midst of our suffering to make our sufferings lead us up to a greater place of closeness and fellowship with God. Whereas apart from Christ, you'll still undergo suffering. But you know what? Your sufferings will be wasted. It'll be like water poured out on the ground. It's just wasted. Yeah, nevertheless, 
If we bring our suffering to Jesus, if we allowed him to be Lord over even our seasons of suffering, instead it's like water poured on a plant that will help it grow and strengthen and be nourished. It's as if God says this, I've drawn close to you in your suffering so that your suffering can mean something, so that it can be redemptive, so that I can work in and through it to make in you a greater and a closer child of God. But friends, don't miss this place. How much God honors sacrifice. How much God honors it when the son of God came down and said, I will sacrifice my comfort. I will sacrifice my perfection and glory. And I will not diminish that perfection, but I will endure great pain and suffering along the way. And why did he did it? He did it so that he could bring his people to glory. That's why Jesus did it. If you want to, if you want to have it in your mind to look at the cross and to look at the cross, not just as we have it depicted here, of course, in a just sort of a a, a representation of a cross. But if you want to think of a cross with the Savior hanging on it, there's Jesus bleeding and dying and suffering on the cross for our sins. Why? Why did he do it? Listen, that's an answer that has many different layers to it. But I'll give you one aspect of it. He did it to lead his people to glory. He did it so that his people would not be trapped and bound in sin, but rather as they unite themselves to him in loving trust, that he would take them and lead them to glory. And I like that. I like that coupling of the suffering with the glory. Because it reminds me of something. It's a truth. It's a little bit cliche, but it's still true. That as a believer, the suffering I endure in this life, this is the worst I'll ever have it. Right now. Isn't that a nice thought? As bad as this world might be sometimes, this is the worst I'll ever have it. But I tell you, for the unbeliever, this world is the best they'll ever get. That's a tough place to be. So here, the idea is that Jesus underwent this all to bring us to glory. Verse 10 says, as the captain of our salvation. What a beautiful idea. That there's Jesus, our forerunner, our leader. He's holding the banner. He's lifting up the sword. He's like the mighty general, the captain, who says, here, come, follow me. I'm on the advance rank. You come right behind me. I'll be your captain. I'll be your leader. Friends, I just need to ask you, is Jesus the captain of your salvation? I don't think there's anything more depressing than trying to be the captain of your own salvation. You can't do it. You can't fulfill that role. You're never going to be that superhero, Captain Salvation. It's not going to work. But Jesus, that fits for him, doesn't it? That's Jesus, captain of our salvation, the one who leads us and many sons to glory. And that very one, verse 10 says that he made perfect through sufferings. And it was fitting for the father to do that. Friends, there's great mystery in that. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, the prophet says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. All those sufferings that Jesus endured on the cross, as painful as they were and as difficult as they were, it was all in the plan of God to accomplish something greater. And that means that your suffering and my suffering can be read into the same divine plan. God knew what he was doing. There was something brought to consummation in God's plan of the ages when God himself endured such sufferings so that he could stand together with his people, as it's described in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, 
I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. That's a quotation from Psalm 22. Now a quotation from Isaiah 18. And again, I will put my trust in him. Now another quotation from Isaiah 18. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now notice that great union between Jesus and his people. It says right there in verse 11, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. We're all in the same group. Jesus says, here I am. And I know I'm putting it too simplistically here, but please just come along with me. He says, here I am. I'm going to heaven. Come with me too. Isn't that beautiful? Here I am. I'm reconciled to God. You can be too. Here I am perfectly righteous before my father. You can be too. And isn't it beautiful that he says, here, just join us all together as one. And it's as if the writer to the Hebrews understands that such a statement sounds so crazy, so preposterous. It's how could you ever say such a thing? That the Messiah, King Jesus, would come and he'd say, I want you to be part of me, part of my group. I want you to all join with me. He says, okay, if it sounds preposterous to you, let me demonstrate it by quoting three passages of scripture. And what are the three passages of scripture that he quotes? First of all, from Psalm 22, he says right there, he says, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And then he says from Isaiah chapter 18, he says, I will put my trust in him. In other words, he's saying, I'm part of that faith community. And then finally, again, in Isaiah 18, he says, here I am and the children you have given me. In other words, here we are all together as a great group. Can you imagine that? Here we are, this all colossal great group of believers before the father. And look, some of you may not have put your trust in Jesus yet. Maybe there's an atheist or an agnostic among us today. Just for now, for the sake of the sermon, you can be with us too. Here we are. We're all with us before Jesus. And Jesus stands up and he goes, here we are, Father, all together, one group. Write them all in on my bill. Put them all in on my check. They're with me. How wonderful that is. So much so that he says something absolutely remarkable. Did you see that there when it says in verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. How could that be? How could it be that Jesus would look at me and say, I'm not ashamed to call him my brother. Now, look, it's just common sense that I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Who could be ashamed of Jesus? You see how amazing he is. You see the glory of his perfection. You see that he never did anything wrong. You see his great sacrificial love. You see Jesus perfect in every aspect. Oh, no, it's just common sense that I'm not ashamed of him. But what does it say that he's not ashamed of me? You might say, well, it says he's blind. No. It says he's got so much great love, so much compassion, and he wants me to be part of his family. Look, if you're in Christ, he's not ashamed of you. You may be ashamed of yourself. You may be burdened down right now as I speak by this almost overwhelming sense that you are such a poor, weak follower of Jesus and everybody else, oh, they seem to have it together around you. By the way, they don't, but it might seem like that to you. 
But you just feel that sense. No, they have it together around me. They must be pleasing to God. But no, I know how weak I am. I know the compromise in my life. I know that I do truly trust in Jesus. But I must be the weakest believer in this room. He's not ashamed of you. You may be ashamed of himself, of yourself. But he is greater than you are. And he says, no, I know you're weak. I know you're failing. I know what you did last night. I know how you were this last week. I know that there's much that you have to get right with me, but I still love you. You're still part of my family. You know, this is something that parents of wayward children understand, don't they? Parents of wayward children understand how much you can love a child even when they're messed up. And this is how it is with us and God. He says, no, you're part of my family. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to work through these things, but you're mine. Isn't that beautiful? He's not ashamed to call me his brother or you, his sister. We're all together here in the great and wonderful family of God. So much so that I like what he says again. I'll just read it one more time at the end of verse 13, where he quotes from Isaiah 8, chapter 18, where he says this. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Here we are, Father. It's as if Jesus stands with us. He says, I'm the older brother, and here are all my younger siblings, and we come before you, Father, and we're all great, one great big group. By the way, I just love that idea, all great one. Let me say this right. All one great big group. I love that idea. It's not like, well, um, here's the first class Christians, and here's the second class Christians. Uh, here's this denomination and that denomination. And, and there's the other denomination. Oh, they're barely on the edge, but they're on out there. No, it's just Jesus looks across his whole great big family. And he says, if you're with me, you're okay. You're good. Here I am in the children you've given me. Now, starting at verse 14, he starts talking about what Jesus did as our great elder brother. Take a look at this, starting at verse 14. He says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. I love that phrase that starts verse 14. He himself likewise shared in the same. For Jesus to truly fulfill that role as elder brother in the family of God, he had to take on flesh and blood. And he had to enter into the prison to free the captives. And so here he comes as a true flesh and blood man. Not a phantom, not an alien, but as a true flesh and blood man. Why? Verse 14 so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, through submitting to death on the cross, Jesus destroyed the deadly power of Satan. And there's two amazing things there. First of all, we understand that Jesus truly was human in that he could die. But secondly, we realize this, that he was God in that he had to voluntarily give up his life. This is what I want you to understand this. He said that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. Jesus had to voluntarily submit to death. 
Jesus said something very remarkable in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Look at it here, verses 17 and 18. He said this. It's actually a very audacious statement. He said, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. What did Jesus mean by that? He meant simply this. No one can take my life from me unless I yield it up. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I can't say that. If, God forbid, a madman were to burst through those doors with a gun and shoot me dead, I'd be dead. I don't have to yield up my life. It's just taken from me in that moment. But Jesus, that wasn't true of him. And I know this is sometimes confusing and we love to think up the hypothetical what ifs. But I'll just put it to you this way. The principle of life was so with Jesus without sin because he was without sin in every way that death had no rightful hold over him and he could not have his life extinguished until he yielded it. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what he did on the cross. When he laid there, excuse me, when he was nailed to the cross there on the nails on the cross up on that piece of wood after he had paid the penalty for our sins, after he cried out, it is finished. The Bible says this, that he bowed his head and it says that he yielded his spirit to his father in heaven. If he would have never done that, he would have lingered on the cross forever because the principle of life could not be taken from Jesus. He had to yield it. And he did yield it so that he could triumph over death and so that you and I could enter into that triumph. That's the whole point. You see, by paying the price and then submitting to death, Jesus destroyed Satan's power of death, meaning that the devil has no right over those who come to God through Jesus' work on the cross. I'll tell you what's some thrilling word. Satan has no authority over my life. I hope it's true for your life as well. If you're in Christ, it's true. He has no rightful authority over your life or my life. My life is hidden in Jesus Christ, and I trust yours is as well. Satan has no power of death over me. That is now set in Jesus Christ. It's defeated. So I don't look at death the same way anymore, and I hope you don't either. I hope you don't have this idea of death, that it rules as a tyrant over the human race. I remember some years ago walking through an old graveyard on the hill of slain outside of Dublin. And I was there visiting with the pastor and we were walking around and I saw this inscription on a tombstone. To me, it was so powerful about the depressing dominance of death. It reads like this. Oh, cruel death, you well may boast of all tyrants. Thou art the most as you all mortals can control The Lord have mercy on my soul. How exciting is that? Ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you this. That's not true for anybody who's joined to Jesus Christ. That's not true of anybody who is among that great company that Jesus said, I'm not ashamed to call them thy brethren. Because it's not true of any of them that death can control them. No, that's not true. Rather, we have control over death in Jesus Christ. You can contrast that to what a follower of Jesus can say, as Paul said in Philippians 1.21. What is it? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how life is for us in Jesus, isn't it? And so as believers, we do not fear death. Now, let me say something, and I'll say them both pretty strong, and I mean them. First of all, 
No follower of Jesus Christ should have a fear of death. And if you do, you should regard that as abnormal. And I mean it. You should come on up and have somebody pray for you. You say, Pastor, listen, I know I'm a believer. I know I've given my life to Jesus Christ. I know my sins are forgiven. But I have an inordinate fear of death. Friends, that is Satan ripping you off. You need to come up forward and we'll have somebody pray for you. But secondly, please don't confuse a fear of death with a fear of dying. A fear of dying is completely rational. You think of all these horrible ways a person might die. And they go, I don't want to die like that. Listen, a fear of dying is rational. A fear of death? No, that doesn't belong to a believer. We know what lies beyond for us. We know that our elder brother Jesus is there and that he's made the way for you and I. And so even though the devil's a murderer, even though the devil is a liar, he doesn't have any dominion over control or or control over the life of a believer. Instead, look at it here in verse 15. The work of Jesus did release those who through fear of death were in their lifetime subject to bondage. If any of you are under the bondage of the fear of death, again, I want to distinguish it from the fear of dying, but from the fear of death, Jesus Christ can set you free. You should regard that. There's not a reason why anybody should leave this room here this afternoon believing that they are afraid of death and what lies beyond. That can be settled in Jesus Christ. And he gives this aid not to angels, but he gives them to those who are the people of faith in this passage described as the seed of Abraham. Now, let's conclude with a look at the last two verses here, 17 and 18, where he says this. Therefore, in all things... He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in what he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. What a great place for us to end our text here this morning. Look at this notice. First in verse 17, he starts off by saying, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Nobody should miss the truth of the humanity of Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. We don't compromise on either point. We don't diminish his deity, but we also dare not diminish his humanity. He had to come in the likeness of man. But friends, here's the difference between my humanity and Jesus's humanity. My humanity is marred by sin. The humanity of Jesus was never marred by sin in the slightest way. Yet apart from that, He shared our humanity completely. So he was made like his brethren. Why? Notice it in verse 17. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So that he could connect with you. So that to put it, and I both this doesn't put it in too much of a cliche way or a strange way, but does there could be a God enthroned in heaven who can look down upon earth and can look at your life and say, I know what you're going through and speak the truth. I mean, imagine what it would be if God had never added humanity to his deity and come and walk the same earth that we live upon and knew what it was like to feel fatigue and stress and hunger and pain. And, 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 well, how about this? And temptation, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, and to experience all those things that are the common lot of humanity. Then we might, 
we might be able to cast an eye up to heaven and say, you don't know what I'm going through. There you are on your ivory throne of perfection. You don't know what I'm living through. You don't know the stress that I have. You don't know the temptations I face. Oh, but friends, it's not like that. Jesus came and as a faithful and merciful high priest, he came to live as we live and to experience what we experience so that he could come to you and I and say, I know, I care, I will support you in your time of trial. This is one of the things that makes me frustrated when people try to set up another mediator between us and God. When people act as if a priest might be more sympathetic than Jesus would be. When people might act as if a pastor or religious leader might be more sympathetic or a saint or even the mother of Jesus might be more sympathetic than Jesus himself. He went to every extent possible to say, here I am, your faithful and merciful high priest. I know what it's like. You can come to me. And that's who Jesus is. And so verse 18, it says that he himself has suffered being tempted. Not only was Jesus tempted, but he suffered under temptation. Do you know what it is to suffer under temptation? You say, of course I know what it's to suffer under temptation. I'm dieting right now. I know what it's to suffer under temptation. Listen, I I wish we could just, you know, consign temptation off to, you know, funny things that we all struggle with, like this or that diet or something like that. But you know, and I know, that temptation is actually a very dark issue for us to talk about, isn't it? Because temptation touches the deepest things of our life and our soul. We are tempted in our mind. We are tempted in our body. We are tempted in our soul. We are tempted to unbelief and to cast off faith. We are tempted to cast off restraint. We are tempted to take every urge of our physical body and simply say, well, I feel it. It must be good. I'm going to fulfill it. We have entire movements in our culture today that are, de- that are dedicated to taking things that are temptations and saying, do it. It's good. And people find more avenues and opportunities to do it every day, it seems. And if you've ever really wanted to please God, if you've ever really wanted to honor your family, if you've ever really wanted to be a righteous woman or a righteous man in this world, you know what an issue temptation is. But right now, in the midst of the darkness and the difficulty of temptation, Jesus draws his face close to yours and he says, I know what it's like. You can rely on me for strength. How wonderful that would be, wouldn't it? In that great moment of temptation that you face, when it feels like a fog of unreality is coming down upon you, for you to reach out and just, so to speak, take hold of Jesus near to you and say, Jesus, I know what I want to do. I know what I'm feeling, but I know that you understand the difficulty of temptation too. Jesus, would you please strengthen me as I lean upon you? And that's what Jesus came to do. He suffered temptation. And one of the great reasons was so that you could receive his strength and so that I could receive his strength in our moments of great temptations. And he knew what this was all about. Some people scoff. They say, oh, he didn't know what temptation was like. I mean, come on. He was God. He was Superman. Temptation bounced off him like bullets off the chest of Superman. No, that's not how it worked. Matter of fact, if you think of it this way, 
some of us, and we say this to our shame, we have known release from temptation by giving into it. Isn't that sometimes how the, the person who's enslaved to an addiction feels? The only way they can find relief from this drive to pursue that addiction is to actually partake of the addiction. And they feel the stress building and building and building until they feel like I have to do it. Well, let me say, you don't have to do it. Jesus Christ offers you a way of escape. But secondly, you know the dynamic I'm talking about, how when you resist temptation, the stress of it builds. Jesus never gave in to the stress of temptation. He must have felt it at a crushing level that you and I will never know. And he knew what those temptations were like. He knew what it was like to be tempted as a little boy, because even children can be tempted. But he knew what it was like to be tempted as a man. He knew what it was like to be tempted by power and by pain, by riches and by poverty, by popularity and by rejection, by friends and by enemies. He knew what it was like to be tempted from his family and from strangers. He knew what temptation was all about. And now Jesus comes and he says, here, I can come and give you aid. Look at it there and we'll close with this. Verse 18. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. What a powerful phrase that is. First of all, he's able. Nobody should leave this room doubting the ability of Jesus Christ to help you in your temptations. He's able. And if I give in to my temptation, it's not because Jesus wasn't able. Oh, I fully put my trust in Jesus. I relied on him. But he let me down. It's not going to happen like that. No, he's able. But notice this. This is the difficulty. He's able to aid those who are being tempted. It's like, no, Jesus, that's not what I want to do. I want you to just fix it. I just want you to take every temptation away. And he says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. I'm going to help you in the midst of it. And that's how he does. So here's my question for you. Do you even want his help? Honestly speaking, some people don't want Jesus's help in the midst of their temptation. That there may be a person who's addicted to some substance or another. And you know what? The reason why they don't really fully yield it to Jesus and rely on his aid in every moment, because they don't want that aid, because they know that they would find victory if they did. There's a person who says, no, no, I'd much rather uh, pursue this sensual temptation that draws me away, because if I relied on Jesus, then I wouldn't enjoy it anymore. Friends, I tell you, it begins with you wanting his help. We're saying, Jesus, would you please come help me? And here's the whole point. We'll come back to where we started right now. He draw near to humanity so that he could help you and I in those places. All right, now you say, well, I failed plenty under temptation. What hope is there for me? Right there at the cross. (laughs) He died to cover your sins even when you failed under temptation. But don't let it end there. Now he comes alongside you to aid you in the midst of it. So let me conclude with prayer and we'll prepare our hearts to come and worship our great Lord even more. Father in heaven, I pray first of all, Lord, I pray for those who are your people. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen those who are tempted now. I don't believe it's any melodrama or exaggeration to say, Lord, That right now in our midst, there's people who are being tempted by an addiction. They're being tempted by some immorality. They're being tempted 
by, by some darkness in their life. Jesus, I pray that you would give them the heart and the ability right now to cry out to you and to say, Jesus, please draw close to me now in the moment of my need. Please do that, Lord. And Father, help us to see how great it is that we have our elder brother there with us. But Lord, I pray as well, I pray for any here among us, they haven't given their lives to Jesus yet. I pray that you would just persuade them now that they shouldn't reject or put away or delay for a moment longer their submission and faith to who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross. If that's you, you can just tell Jesus so right now. Jesus, I give up fighting. I repent of my sins. I put my trust in you. That's just a start, but it's a start. Father, bless those who want to do that this morning. Help them to walk continually with you. Father, draw them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.